Hi, guys. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. Very exciting to have you. Marissa, Barbara, I see Bonnie, Bobby, Lorraine. This is wonderful. Pete, Buddy. I love these people. And I, you know, and I recognize you. This is going to be a big webinar for us. I see Jackie and Lynn and Kimberly, um, Emanuela, Mary Pat. Love this. Anne is on. Luann, Rebecca, Tanya, Betty, Nan. I love this. You guys, we're, we're packed today, just so you know. I'm Sarah Cooperman. I'm the CEO of SCW Fitness Education. I'm also the CEO of Water in Motion and the one of the co-founders of the SEAT program. It's called SEAT Fitness. It's Supported Exercise for Ageless Training which is very cool. Seat, it's chair workout. Okay, very cool. We're very excited here. I've got Alex Bryce with me, Kelly Roberts, Rosie Malahan. Kelly is an SCW faculty member. She leads the personal training search. She also leads the active aging certification. She was named Idea Fitness Instructor of the Year. She was also awarded Best Female Presenter. And she's also been inducted into the National Fitness Hall of Fame. Rosie is someone that we've been very lucky to meet over this pandemic, um, and we're excited to have her presenting at Midwest Mania with us. She um, has over 15 years experience in teaching and counseling, both virtually and live. She's a fitness, yoga, leadership, and organizational development leader. She holds a master's degree of science and has served as an adjunct faculty faculty member at the University of Rhode Island. So welcome, Rosie. And then we have Alex Bryce, who there's very few people I can say have personally trained me. And he's one of them. He's fabulous. He holds a master's degree in exercise science with undergraduate degrees in strength and conditioning and sports nutrition. A little frightening. He is certified um, strength and conditioning specialist from the National uh, Strength and Conditioning Association. He's also currently producing his uh, pr uh, pursuing yeah, producing pursuing his doctorate in physical therapy. So I've got these like amazing people on here. So I'm really excited about this. Um, and we're going to be talking about hips. Hips don't lie. Do you guys know there are over 4,000, 400,000 hip replacements in the United States each year and the numbers keep rising. Now, one of the things, I'm gonna start with you, Alex. I'm gonna say, we were talking about this and we were talking about, are these hip replacements really effective? So can you share with us your thoughts? Well, um, I see that number as very concerning. Um, and despite the fact that there continue to be improvements in uh, surgical methods and outcomes, uh, my goal is always to prevent as many people as possible from going under the knife as I can. And there is a compelling argument to make that um, hundreds of thousands of those surgeries were probably unnecessary if uh, earlier intervention measures had been taken or if uh, non-surgical uh, rehab or therapy measures were you know, exhausted prior. Um, the long-term outcomes, especially for the knee where there is more data available, 
uh, for orthopedic uh, procedures, especially replacements, is very poor uh, compared to non-invasive measures. And in many cases, the surgery itself can be more uh, traumatic than the injury. So it's something that we have to very seriously consider. And it isn't as simple as MRI diagnose, uh, decide to go under the knife, and now we're good to go. Um, and I don't want to take too much time so we can come back to it later, but even the idea that we can accurately diagnose uh, problems at the hip or really any joint from MRI or x-ray really does not hold up to the available evidence. Uh, many of the issues that we see on imaging that would be diagnosed as labral tears, edema, cam deformities, et cetera, at the hip are also seen in people who are completely asymptomatic. So it's a much more um, convoluted area than you would think. And, um, you know, I'm going to try to exhaust everything that I can from a strength training or uh, exercise perspective first before just popping somebody under the knife, especially when so many of these hip replacement patients are sedentary. Yes. And when they're, when they're sedentary, if you take a sedentary person and then you're going to operate on them, and then you're going to tell them to go into rehab. They're not going into rehab. They're not doing it. They're not performing the exercises on their own. And they're not going to change their lifestyle. And like you said, sometimes it can take them even deeper into that discomfort and into that immobility. So that's, that is pretty interesting here. Um, one thing I want to say, you guys. Would you do me a favor? You can move your mouse. You can go to the bottom of your screen and there is a share screen button. And if you go to the left, you're going to see your chat box. Go click on that chat box. I love it. People always tell me where you're from. I love this. Hi, Mary from Maryland. But you can also ask questions, you know, ask these people questions. They know what they're talking about. Kelly, you work consistently with older adults and you work through personal training as well as group exercise. What are you seeing um, that uh, leads up to some of these injuries and hip replacements? Um, if someone's really active and they have a hip injury or, or, or they've got a lot of um, osteoarthritis, it's often due to a lack what I see anyway is a real lack of flexibility that that they are actually moving. You know, I've, I've had a client who was a tennis player who had both her hips replaced and and she was very, very active, but she was also very, very tight. And another client of mine who takes my class recently, like two years ago, had her hip replaced and, again, very tight um, and, and reasonably strong and very active. So, but is this tightness that you're seeing that you think leads to a lot of these injuries? Well, I think tightness can lead to a lot of wearing on the joint for sure. You know, it, it, the hip joint loves space. And when you, when the muscles, when things really tighten down, you're going to get a lot of wear on the cartilage. And so I see just from my experience, a lot of people who are active, who are getting their hips replaced, to appear to be very tight in their hips. And I think, Rosie, you were talking about, when I asked you before we turned the camera on about what type of exercises you work with these people, and you actually, you brought up 
chair yoga? And what other modalities do you try to implement, let's say before the surgery, after the surgery? And, and do you work with the physicians or the physical therapist? What do you recommend? Um, prior to surgery, I think it's really important that somebody prep and get past if they have been sedentary, right? Get them up and moving before they have the surgery. So walking, climbing stairs is more of an everyday occurrence and for longer periods of time. Um, inside the gym, a lot of balance training. So using the BOSU, I think is a fantastic way to strengthen, you know, the ankle around the knee and get up all the way into the hip since it's all connected. And when they come back from surgery, you know, post rehab, they're going to have a new normal. We talked about a new normal where they have to feel their body, identify if it's pain or if it's just stiffness, identify if it's interrupting their movement pattern, or if it just takes a little bit longer of a time. So sitting to stand motions, ankle pumping, um, adding glute bridges um, on a regular basis to really um, release the hip flexors, all of these things prior to surgery are very, very helpful because they can all be things that they can then practice after surgery. And now they know what they could do prior, but now they have a goal to work towards after. Oh, that's great. And Alex, what are your thoughts on the exercises pre-surgery and post-surgery? Well, I always have to say it depends first, right? We have to fit the exercise prescription to where someone is from a training status, health, wellness standpoint. So um, that's always going to be individualized. But at the end of the day, training or exercise should look far more similar than it does different for the vast majority of people. The hip can only perform so many different movements. It only has so many different degrees of freedom. And you want to be making sure that you're kind of covering all of those bases uh, with a well-rounded approach. So much of that comes down to glute training. Um, that's never going to be a bad thing. There's no such thing as glutes that are too strong. Um, and you know, they're the glutes are really the engine that are driving the vast majority of movement at the hip. So, you know, all of your basic patterns of thrust, bridge, uh, hinge exercises like deadlifts, RDLs, squatting, lunging, step-ups, any of those big compound exercises, the hip extension is really the, the major movement that's being trained there. And then making sure that you're also adding in abduction and external rotation, moving the leg away from the midline of the body. Uh, which is going to typically be a lot of glute medius activation and then you know, adding in direct hip flexion as well. That's going to be a fairly well-rounded approach, whether someone has been, uh, you know, has gone through surgery or not. It's just how far regressed are those exercise variations? You know, I'm not going to take somebody right out of surgery and put 200 pounds on their back. Uh, it might be a body weight or even assisted variation first, and then just gradually adding load and volume to improve the work capacity and range of motion of the joint. Um, someone had just asked uh, about FAI. Yeah. Um, so FAI stands for femoral acetabular impingement. So it's one of the most common injuries at the hip where uh, it's very similar to what's known as a cam deformity, where let's pretend this is the femur and the head of the femur, and this is the actual um, bony articulation um, at the acetabulum or the hip joint. And many times it will uh, start to grow over into an impingement. Um, in many cases, uh, there, uh, people will go under the knife for FAI when it simply isn't necessary. 
And the only real contraindication there is it can be painful and challenging um, for people with FIIs to uh, do heavy bilateral squatting. But squatting to a box or switching to unilateral variations is typically very well tolerated. And um, there are many, many things that you can do uh, to still you know, continue to, uh, to train and to train hard and do the things that you really like. Um, but it's, it's figuring out these exercises that they can do. And Kelly, you brought something up that was very interesting about the way the surgery is performed and which, what angle we choose to surgically enter the body really has an impact on the success of the operation itself. Yeah, one of my clients had had the hip replaced through the side and they cut the glute medius and it's it's a very major surgery. They, they cut a lot of muscle to get into the side of the hip and it wasn't as at all successful. They didn't put the angle of the femur in correctly so it was in a very valgus alignment and then she needed a knee replacement as a result of the alignment that with the hip. She couldn't cross her leg because that lateral um, procedure really prevents you from crossing the midline with your leg. She had the other hip replaced through the front and it was completely successful. She had no pain in the hip, no pain in the knee. She had no contraindications. It was night and day to watch her recovery. And uh, she was a tennis player. She was That's amazing. So coming from the side, they're going to cut the gluteus medius and you've got all this injury, the connective tissue, you've got the musculature that has to repair. What, when they come in from the front, what happens? Because you explained that, what, where well, the, they, what they actually, the knife goes through. Yeah, they, they don't cut muscle. They, they open, they spread between the, the rectus femoris and the psoas and open through the hip that way. So, you know, there's some bruising from, pulling on the muscles but it's not cut it's not nearly as traumatic not and, nearly and that leads to an easier recovery a nice, better recovery yeah and how did you work with this client this tennis player you know you're dealing with one hip that's bad one hip that's good how did what type of exercises did you do and how did you work around these issues well, she she was she was pretty challenging because she loved playing tennis and she needed a she had to get her knee replaced. It it was it was it was challenging because she had RA and um, one side of her body reacted one way and the other side of the body was quite different. So it was very complicated. She really, um, you know, tennis probably wasn't the best choice of activity, but she loved it. I would have loved her in the water, quite honestly. Yeah, Rosie, you teach a lot of water exercise, don't you? Mm -hmm. And and I remember teaching water exercise and I get these people that have these old fashioned hip replacements and they kept saying, you know, we do the jumping jacks across the feet, which is wonderful for the inner thigh and the outer thigh. I mean, it's terrific. They're like, no, I can't do that. So mm -hmm. I'm always like, well, just bring your feet together. Just bring your feet right. together and, and what other modifications or how do you use the water for these hip replacement individuals? I think a format that's worked great, actually that I will be talking about at Midwest Mania is a, a, a run and conditioning type class where we have intervals of walking drills. Um, so not as much pressure coming down on impact. 
um, where you get external rotation and internal rotation, where we get that hinging movement and being able to master that in the water without fear of falling forward. We have the side of the pool where we can practice great posture, adding leg swings. Um, I love the whole focus on the glute activation. I think Anne Gilbert refers to it as um, glute amnesia, when you forget that the glutes need to be active. So I think that coming into um, the use of the wall, again, for squats, um, for that leg swing is really, really important. So I love that format because you can build it to the people that come. Um, it's much more comfortable. It's not nearly as fast paced as maybe an aqua Zumba or an aqua fitness cardio based class. Um, but using intervals, using a lot of cueing direction and honestly different arm placement and how they're using their resistance in the water. So if they're using the resistance, if they're um, using that, then they're creating so much more force with their own body that they may not even realize. So yeah. all of a sudden, you know, they realize, oh, wow, I'm actually, I'm really, I'm working hard and, you know, my, my hips are okay and my knees are okay and my ankles are okay. So I, I guess I can do this. And then I'll come back, which is the most important is that they continue because they were successful. And it's really nice because when you're in the water and you're submerged, you, you know, you're at about chest level, you're getting about, let's say 50% of your body weight that you're mm -hmm. working on. So right. instead of running on land or, or walking on land, the impact shock is much less on the body. So that's a way to begin Absolutely. and then cross train and then yep. do this strength training that we need to do that Alex, Alex is talking about. Um, what other types of strength training, Alex, would you have, would you have people do? I know you're a big proponent of strength training, but I wonder, would you integrate some balance training? What other things would you do? Well, um, it's all, you're always going to be looking to, uh, fill as many sort of fitness bucket variables as possible. Right. And the reason that I start with strength or really treat it as the foundation is because it's the only uh, fitness measure that positively impacts all others. Um, you can't say that about uh, energy system development or power or coordination training or agility, any of those things. Strength is the very middle of that Venn diagram. And my biggest concern with any of my clients is I'm trying to make them harder to injure. I'm trying to improve their resilience of all of their tissues because strong people are harder to kill than weak people and are more useful. Being weak is the true risk. Uh, not being strong. And we have to kind of remove that stigma of fear of injury in the weight room uh, because if any sort of smart programming um, is going to make an enormous difference there uh, for just improving someone's resilience and hardiness in and outside of the weight room. Um, in terms of specifically balanced training, I would argue that for adults, truly training balance in a vacuum is essentially impossible because once your vestibular system is fully formed, any balance work that you're doing is very task specific. It's not going to transfer. So like tightrope walking is only going to make you better at tightrope walking. It's not going to make you any better at surfing. Uh, and typically when we're, when we talk about balance, what we truly mean is stability or the ability to resist sway or changing our center of mass. Well, stability is an expression of strength. So we're right back to strength training again. And for any adult uh, working on you know, unilateral exercises or uh, 
uh, things where it is challenging for them to stabilize and maintain position is also going to have a downstream effect of improving balance in the vestibular system and pro proprioception. Now, there can be some exceptions if you're coming right off of surgery. And if you're coming off of surgery, we're kind of starting all the way back at the, the bottom uh, of, of movement ability, and there might be some lack of awareness uh, depending on how invasive the surgery was itself, there could be some issues with recruitment due to, you know, the actual incision, like we've talked about cutting certain muscles or innervations or nerves. So there can be more of a time and place for something like being on a BOSU or uh, being on an Airx pad or something along those lines. But in general, things like unstable surfaces are extremely ineffective because they just decrease muscle activation and they decrease uh, your body's ability to perform. And this whole idea of, oh, we're training stabilizers. The idea of like regular muscles versus stabilizers really doesn't hold any merit. If you're looking at what muscle groups stabilize a joint. You're just back to the biggest muscles. Uh, you know, the glutes are going to be playing a huge role in stabilizing your pelvis, whether you're on a balance board or not. So I, I think, you know, there's this dichotomy where people consider strength training or balance training, or flexibility training. But if you are loading your body through a full range of motion, and you, if you are progressive with anything that you do, in a lot of ways, a rising tide floats all boats, and you're going to see improvements across the board. And so strength training is going to help your cardio, it's going to help your balance, and in some, and in, in some ways, it'll help your flexibility if that strength training is done evenly. Absolutely. Are working in opposition. And that's interesting. I mean, I got to be honest with you. I'm a, I'm, I'm with Rosie. I'm a big BOSU fan, but you know, we've got the science, exercise science is constantly changing. And in some regards, it's contradictory. And it depends on what re researcher at times you, you listen to. Um, Kelly, are you doing balance training with your older adults? Do you do skill work with them as well. If you know they're tennis players or you know that they're going to go out and ski, let's just say. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I have some older adults who ski. Um, I absolutely do balance training, but it's not in a vacuum. As Alex, Alex talked about, I, the, the stuff I do is strength related balance training where I might put them in a position where I'm narrowing their base of support um, for, for an exercise. But then I'm not going to put them at such a mechanical disadvantage that the balance is hijacking their ability to perform the exercise strongly. You know, I, I, want, I want them to get strong first and foremost. I really agree with Alex about that. And, but I might do some exercises where I do some dynamic balances like... Um, like a, like a, say, a side lunge into a single leg balance like that, mm -hmm. or a tandem stance here, something really dynamic where there's some proprioception and dynamic movement as well as balance involved. I don't do a lot of static balance. Yeah, and I also noticed there's a good eccentric movement going on when you when you draw that knee up and that helps to hypertrophy the muscle quicker by focusing a little bit more on the eccentric movement pattern, which is really great. Um, uh, there was a question I had, 
the posterior um, approach on both hips and was walking the same day after surgery. Um, now that's interesting. I don't really know what a posterior approach is on the surgery. Kelly, can, have you heard that or can you explain yeah. that a little bit? Yeah, they, they go in through the back, but there's, there's, it's, a little, it's a little bit more invasive than the front procedure. It is a little bit more invasive, but I, I'm surprised. I know uh, my mother's best friend had the posterior version of the procedure and, um, and she didn't have any problems post-surgery. She had no problems at all. The only problem I've ever seen firsthand was someone with that side approach because the doctor, I think it's hard for them to see the actual alignment when they're putting the hip in there, uh, that from the front, you know, you, you can absolutely see the alignment that you're placing the hip. And so I think the, the, the front approach is the, the one I'm seeing the most now. Because, because like you said, they're having very positive results. Yeah. This is another thing that's interesting. And Alex, I'm going to scoot over to you. April says her father-in-law had a total hip replacement with anterior approach. It was walking the same day. Okay, we got that. But we also have to think about this recovery. And Alex brought up bone mineralization, the, the hip bone deterioration, and then you've got to rebuild it. And, and Alex, can you elaborate a little bit on how we rebuild the bone? Because that's part of the way we're gonna recover from this surgery. Sure, um, you know, when we're looking at the, physio the physiology of aging, a natural loss of water and bone mineral density does occur. Um, and we can't attenuate all of that entirely, but we can certainly slow that process drastically uh, simply by being active. Um, strength training is not the only way to go about that, uh, to impact bone remodeling. In fact, there are a number of studies that have shown that elderly lifelong runners have significantly more dense bones than you know, their sedentary control counterparts at any age. Um, and actually one of my closest friends is currently doing a lot of uh, bone um, remodelization research uh, as an assistant professor at UPIT. And one of the things that his lab has found is that multi-direction plyometrics are also extremely effective uh, in inducing changes, positive adaptations in bone mineral density. Strength training and that sort of compressive load uh, is one of the factors, but after a while, your body adapts to that fairly rapidly. Uh, but we also have to talk about diet. Um, many people are not consuming enough protein on a regular basis, and that is even more true in um, hopefully not active agers, but certainly in the senior population at large, uh, and making sure that you are consuming adequate protein and calcium is certainly going to make a difference. When we look at something like um, you know, degeneration, which is a little bit of a uh, wishy-washy term, we can use a little bit of an analogy for that or for disc herniations or uh, bone on bone is not a real diagnosis, but doctors will tell you that, uh, that they're meaning, you know, a loss of hyaline cartilage. That's essentially wrinkles on the inside, if we want to use an analogy, right? And we, we get that imaging result from the MRI and we're so convinced that there is something absolutely wrong and that that's a problem and that we have to do something about it. If you're symptomatic, if you have a ton of pain, if it's impacting your activities of daily living, 
if you can't sleep, well, then of course, you know, a more serious intervention is going to be necessary. But if you didn't even know that you were walking around with something like that until your doctor tells you, that diagnosis can actually do far more harm than good because it can start to be part of your identity. And then we can get into a hypervigilant state where we're super aware of that. We avoid, it, uh, we avoid activity. We start feeling tighter, stiffer, loss of function. So we are more hypervigilant. We avoid ex, uh, activity. And that cycle just continues to perpetuate until we're stuck in a chair. And that's all we can do. So. Then, sorry, uh, sorry. What I was going to say is, Rosie, you've got like a combined expertise, both in fitness as well as counseling. And you probably deal with a lot of clients that you know, it's almost like they've been told they're immobile and, you know, that it comes true. So how do you work with the mindset of an individual that's, that is rehabbing from hip surgery or contemplating the hip surgery? Well, I think Alex, that was a really good transition in saying that, um, psychologically things are going to change. Um, and what I do is I ask really specific questions and I get them to identify if it's really number one, are you aware of it? Cause they'll, they'll say, Oh, it hurts. Oh, it, I can't do this. My, my doctors would be so mad if I come back, if I have to do this again, right. They get very, very nervous. So is it an awareness? You just know that joint is feeling something. Is it pain? Is it a discomfort? Right. So we talked about everyone has their own threshold of pain. So I need to work with this person to identify their and understand their threshold of pain. I will say on a scale of one to 10 with, you know, 10 being the absolute pain, you cannot move, you cannot do anything. And, you know, one being you could do anything. Where are we right now? And I'm going to take note of that. So I, I'm, I have my notebook, I, I'm ready. And I'm going to work on that from week to week and see if their threshold is starting come to diminish. But I want to make sure that I check back with them after 24 to 48 hours and ask, what does it feel like now? Was there swelling? Did you need an anti-inflammatory? Did you need ice? Did you feel discomfort? Was it waking you up at night in the middle of the night? So there's a lot of different factors that I can do so that they can start to identify really that one, this is just my new normal. This is maybe just stiffness. This is maybe just fatigue. This is not necessarily pain or a bad thing, but in reality, I'm going to work through this. I'm going to understand my body more and be really mindful of how I move forward into more PT group fitness classes and life active living. Yeah. So you, you had, I, I love what you said at the beginning, you said, well, when they come back, you know, after they've seen their physical therapist, I like them to do some personal training first mm -hmm. and then come possibly into the group classes. Um, and I think we talked about talking to the physical therapist even. So right. if they encourage that, allow that, want that, having that relationship with the physical therapist or just say, can you bring, I know a lot of physical therapists give handouts. This is what I want you to work on at home. You know, can you bring those handouts in? And honestly, a huge compliment to a personal trainer is when my client sits down and they've never shown me what they've been doing in PT. And they said, oh, I did this in physical therapy. 
And I want to give them a high five, which means that they're familiar with it. We're on the right path. Let's continue and progress. Yeah. And that's great when they can also bring you that. And Alex, you also brought up something interesting about redheads. So you have to share that. Yeah. So um, pain science is a very new field and we are continuing to realize that we know nothing about pain and pain is really, really complex. It's not a sensation. It's an experience and you cannot explain pain by musculoskeletal reasons alone. Um, a really easy example would be phantom pain. You know, someone can lose a limb and wake up in the middle of the night years later and it hurts. It's literally not there anymore. And their body is still experiencing pain. I have uh, experience working with um, clients who have complex regional pain disorders where their body is convinced that there's an injury and they're in tremendous pain in an area where there is literally nothing wrong. Pain and injury or pain and pathology like we would see on an MRI do not correlate. Um, you know, if we screened every single person who's attending this webinar, I would bet my bottom dollar that at least half of us, maybe as high as 80 to 90% would show something in the, along the lines of an FAI, a labral tear, a cam deformity, edema, something at our hip and or knee, or even half of us are probably walking around with uh, disc degeneration, but we're asymptomatic. So there is, I wish that it was easy to connect these dots and explain all of it through biomechanics, but we can't. We have to look at the biopsychosocial impacts, even something like your expectations for uh, an exercise. If, uh, if a trainer with poor bedside manner is telling you, well, I don't know, you don't move very well and you just came off of surgery and this is probably going to hurt your back. Guess what? You're far more likely for it to actually hurt your back or if you've had prior bad experiences, you know, that's going to influence uh, how you experience pain. When I get in an argument with my wife, my low back hurts, not because I did anything from an exercise standpoint, uh, and even genetics, uh, and the gene that uh, codes for red hair, uh, can also have an impact on your sensitivity to pain and the nociception receptors that are present in your body. Yes. So pain is a very, very complex subject. And it's really frustrating because so often it is illogical and we don't have clear, rational explanations for why uh, pain is occurring. And the more we learn about it, the less biomechanics and technique and posture seems to have uh, in how we experience pain. And that's why we have a multifunctional approach when we're dealing with these clients. You know, it's great to have the strength training but we need the cardiovascular training. We need the flexibility. We need the mind-body connection through meditation and things of that nature. Kelly, what, what do are some of the things you use to help your clients get through these discomforts? I know we're working physically, but do you integrate anything, let's say mental or mind-body oriented with the exercise programs that you, I'm going to use the word that I usually don't like to use, I, but that you're going to prescribe to your clients? Well, I, I don't know about prescribe, but I, I, um, I love the water. I think the water, like post-surgery is a really good, once, you, once there's no risk for infection, um, post-surgery, getting someone in the, in the water out of gravity with, um, with the water resistance is very helpful, I think, post joint replacements. I, I replaced my left shoulder and did six months of rehab in the pool. And 
it was enormously successful. It, 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 it's highly functional. So I, I had a really good experience personally in the pool. So I love, I love the water. And I also, Rosie mentioned, you get that sheet of paper from your physical therapist. I always get my clients to bring in that piece of paper. And then I, I, I use that as a guide to progress the exercises from that, from those exercises that they've already been doing because they have a familiarity to the exercise. I can progress them nicely and, and, and make it a little bit more challenging and, and build the program around those functions. And that's great to, to have that sheet of paper and asking for it, requesting it. Um, being a lawyer, of course, I would highly recommend, I would basically demand to get a, a note from the physician that it's okay for them to begin exercise. And I also would get an informed consent form, which is basically a waiver of liability that tells them, you know, you can get injured, you can feel pain, you can die, you can get infections, you know, from exercise. Seriously, you want to inform them of all the risks and, and have them sign. In the United States, they're being upheld in, in courts. Oh, all over the country. Some states are a little bit different and they don't uphold it. Canada um, is a little reticent and they don't support it. But in North, in North America, in the USA, they are supporting these things. Um, Rosie, what type of strategies do you take? Do you, I know you said that you love the water, you love doing balance training and you get that sheet of paper. I wonder, I'm going to try to do this. If anybody who's on this webinar has one of those sheets of paper that you got from your physician. Um, I want you to send it to us. Beth, would you put, you put my personal email address in the chat, if you wouldn't mind, the sjcooperman at gmail.com. Just put it in there, email it to me, and I will make sure that we will attach it to the recording so that everybody at least can see one or two, send me a couple. I've seen a couple people in the chat have had hip replacements. Um, and Kelly, you had your shoulder replaced. So I'm sure they gave you a sheet of paper. When I had my knee surgery, when I had just my you know, meniscus repaired, I got my, you know, my exercise sheet. And my husband thought I was ridiculous, but I'm going through every exercise. He's like, Sarah, you're nuts. You, you, you know more exercises that are on these three sheets of paper, but you know we have to follow them. But it, these things are great. So if you could be sure to send us, be send, you see, yeah, there's my email address. You don't need to add the exclamation point of the smiley face. I think Beth thinks it's very funny that I'm gonna get all these emails. So thank you, <laughs> um, but it's, it's really good. Um, now, what stretches are benefit to help increase the range of motion? What specific stretches would you recommend, Rosie? I think that if you don't have your clients doing some chair yoga already, I think that is a great place to start. Lots of extensions, lots of confidence in your clients because they're already sitting. They're not in fear of falling. Um, this gives them a way to participate and feel good about it. So. I love seated sun salutations. I love single leg extensions from a seated position. Side bends with a wide leg. Um, so almost like a plie squat leg, but with a side bend. 
I think important to be able to rotate and work on knee dips, almost like, almost like a lunge, but on a chair, right? You're facing sideways. I think those are all really, really important as well as your modified pigeon, your seated figure four. And again, with the hip hinge forward and back, I think those are all so doable and can be done at any point, as long as you have a safe chair that's not on wheels. And that really, guys, remember to tell them that because that's not something that always comes up, um, ideally without armrests. Um, maybe a stiff cushion or bender ball in the back of your chair so that you keep a nice spine. That's all really good ideas so that they can feel most accessible while they're being. Yeah, that's great. And we just got a question from Kim. Kim asked, now that I'm two months post-surgery, would standing yoga be good to start with? And I'm going to, I'm going to jump in here and say, you've got to get cleared by your physician. You've got to get cleared by your physical therapist. And if your physical therapist tells you, yes, you're ready, you're ready. The same way we can't tell somebody's fitness letter, their fitness level by a number, you know, I, I, I'm going to just tell you, I ski like I'm 32 and I'm 62. Okay. It's thrilling. I love skiing with my with my kids, friends, and I kick their butts on the slope. You're not a number, you're a fitness level. So I can't tell you two months, one month, six weeks, you know, that when you're ready to do something, talk to them. Standing yoga is great. You just have to make sure that you're with the modifications and you've got the support of, of whatever position you don't, you want to move slowly through each movement pattern. But again, that's, that's my opinion. I'm, I'm done. Um, <laughs> I can't believe we are getting close to being finished. I mean, I feel like we could keep going for quite some time. I'm going to give you each just a quick minute, then eh, 30 seconds, if you would, um, to give us just a quick closing remark. I'm going to start with you, Alex, if you don't mind, about what we can do. Hips don't lie. How we can prevent these hip replacements. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. The, the two biggest things that I could say are walk every day, uh, not just for the physical benefits, but uh, the psychological, mental benefits, being outside, et cetera. Uh, and uh, strength training, you know, focus on training your glutes, uh, compound exercises, uh, the, the lower body movements like squatting, lunging, deadlifts that nobody wants to do um, and focus on squeezing your glutes and uh, get them big and strong. And hopefully we can prevent you from having to go under the knife in the first place. That's great. Cause if you squeeze your glutes, if you don't squeeze your glutes, nobody else will squeeze them for you. Ha <laughs> ha. Okay. Um, all right. Rosie closing. What do you recommend for, for after what's the first thing you recommend to people if they come back after physical therapy to join you? The first thing I ask them, of course, is what you talked about, clearance, making sure they're good to go and encouraged to then proceed forward. And then I would encourage them to set up an appointment with a trainer one-on-one -on -one so that they can reevaluate what's going on in their body and they can reevaluate what their new normal for stiffness, fatigue, pain, and discomfort are before they're moving into a class where honestly, ego sometimes takes over 
oh my goodness, I can no longer do what she's doing. So we don't want to worry about that in the beginning, straight out of rehab. We want to worry just about you. What are you thinking? What's going on? And you're the priority. And then when you feel confident after a few sessions in PT, love the aqua classes, love the chair yoga classes. And I think those are a great place to start. Wonderful. Thank you. And Kelly, what are your thoughts for training um, your clients to get back in there, play tennis again, go skiing again, go hiking again? Well, I love to talk to the physical therapist. I, I'm a big one for working with the physical therapist very directly. I, um, I, I, I feel very comfortable being able to recommend different exercises for my client if I know what they've been doing in physical therapy and what their therapist wants them to do. Then I feel very safe moving forward in that direction. I love the water. I love working on flexibility as well as strength and uh, keeping that mobility. And I love, I love what Alex said about walking and, and uh, there's so many different ways you can approach it, but definitely strength, flexibility, and under the guidance of a physical therapist wherever possible. Wonderful. Thank you guys so much for joining us tonight. Beth, Kaney, thank you so much for running this wonderful webinar. And thank you all for joining us. We had over 300 people register, 100 show up. And Kelly, Rosie, and Alex, I salute you. Thank you so much for sharing. Take care, everybody, and have a great night.